Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. What does your education mean to you? What would you be willing to sacrifice for it? For me and my sister growing up, it was a given that you'd get, quote unquote, well-educated. You'd get good grades, go to a good college, and most likely graduate, medical, law, or business school. School was just what you did, ritualized and wrote the way religion is for some other families. For my guest today, Tara Westover, the framework was completely different. In her mountain home in Idaho, school was seen as a threat. It was a government tool for brainwashing people out of faith in God's teachings and into worldly decadence. She went on to become very well-educated by anybody's standards, studying history at Cambridge University in England and at Harvard, but it came at a very high price. Her first book, Educated, is a powerful and beautifully written memoir about family, loyalty to oneself, and the difficult, even impossible choices we sometimes have to make. Welcome to Think Again, Tara. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, this is a very personal book. This was a very personal journey for you that you're writing about, and you're going out and you're representing it in the world. I mean, publishing the book, of course, but also talking on shows like this one. What has that been like? What kind of reflections or misunderstandings are you seeing of your own story that you'd like to correct? How, how do you want this to go out into the world? I think Broadly, any time I talk to someone who has a different interpretation of the book than I do, I don't feel a lot of need to correct them. Okay. This is a book about about family, and it's about what happens to a, a family when one person in that family changes a lot. And that family finds it really hard to keep that person and still accept them. And so it has a lot of questions in it about change, and about how much you're allowed to change, and what happens when the people around you can't allow you to change or can't accept you when you've changed. Right. And, and it has a, a, a big theme of estrangement in it. And a lot of people who write this kind of book write it when they're much older. And the story tends to be settled. So people write this kind of book in, when they're in their 50s or 60s and their parents have passed away. Right. And there's often been some kind of reconciliation, maybe a deathbed reconciliation, or maybe just a reconciliation with a memory after death. But I didn't, I didn't write that book. I started writing it when I was 28 and I'd, I'd finished it by the time I was 30. And, you know, my parents are alive, they're healthy, um, I'm, I'm alive, I'm healthy. We could be living with the situation that we're in for quite a while, and I don't know how it will end. So when people read the book and they take a specific ending in their minds, they imagine it will end this way or they imagine it will end that way, I don't really mind. I feel like it probably has a lot more to do with what they need to believe about their own lives than mm. anything to do with mine, and I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. So, you know, we should let the audience know that the situation is that you grew up in a, it's a pretty big family by my standards. Um, how, how many siblings did you there have? There were seven of us. Seven of you. That's maybe not a big family by Mormons. It's still, re- it's, a, it's a decent sized okay, family for a, sure, yeah. even for Mormons. Okay. Yeah. And you're in touch with some of them, like some of them could kind of go along with your journey, but others could not. And most notably, your parents were not able to go with you on, on your journey in the end. Yeah, so I, I was raised in this, on this beautiful mountain in Idaho, uh, the youngest of seven children. My father was kind of a charismatic radical, and what that meant was he was opposed to a lot of the institutions that most people take for granted. So doctors and hospitals, we were never allowed to go, not when we were ill, not when we were injured, and also the public school. He was also opposed to the government, so I never even had a birth certificate till I was nine, right. which meant, according to the state, I basically didn't exist. So my family lived in this really extreme, radical way. And when I was 16, I would decide to educate myself, and I would kind of scrape together enough knowledge to pass the ACT and go to a university. And that would be the beginning of a 10-year journey through education for me that would take me to some of these really wonderful places, Harvard, Cambridge. But that path would take me away from my family. And for my parents, at least, it would there would come a point where they could no longer accept me. And not for just my parents, but for another one of, for one of my siblings. And so I would be disowned by them. And after that, there would be a long process of coming to terms with that right. and accepting it. Because there were three or four years where I tried to fix it and tried to... And that's very much the word I used in my head, you know, that I could fix the situation. I could just make it better somehow and make it so that we didn't have to lose each other. And it took me three or four years to realize 
unless I was going to go back to being who I was before as right. a child, we maybe did have to lose each other. That maybe was what had to happen. Whether it's temporary or... or Whether it's temporary yeah. or permanent, I don't know. Yeah. And I also don't feel like that's under my control. Right, but that you had to make the choice. It kind of had to happen, I think. Um, You know, there are ways that my family lived that were difficult for me to understand, but that I could could negotiate. So they didn't believe in doctors. And there was a a time my my senior year of college that my father, there was a terrible accident in my dad's junkyard, and he was standing next to a car. And because he, he isn't very good about safety measures, he hadn't drained the fuel tank before he tried to remove the... Yeah. the tank with a cutting torch. And of course, a spark from the torch made it into the tank and the car exploded. And he was burned horribly. And I mean, I didn't, he nearly died. And my family made the decision to treat it at home. They made a salve of comfrey and lobelia and they truly believed that doctors were not, not all right, that they would just hurt him, that they would try to kill him, that they would give him drugs that he would never recover from. Right. So they treated it at home. And that was very difficult to watch them do. But in a way, I was able to do that. Even though I was kind of moving towards the mainstream, they were moving towards becoming more radical. We were still kind of negotiating each other. What we wouldn't be able to negotiate in the long run was my older brother, Sean. Yeah. So to fill the audience in a little bit. I mean, we could say also that there were, this accident of your father's was one of many accidents, one of the ways that like your mother was um, what we might call a kind of herbalist faith healer in a way. I mean, she was working with essential oils and, and herbs, but within a religious framework, right? The idea she was, certainly was that the power believed, of God was behind the healing. She certainly believed that that the herbs wouldn't work without faith. And my father very much believed that. And so they also believed that they wouldn't work if you went to a doctor. So if you took any, you know, if you took a Tylenol, that the herbs wouldn't work. So that's oh God, another- yeah, there's that moment in the book, right? You, you, oh, remind me what this is. You're, you're, you, you end up having to take antibiotics. You get, you get pretty sick at some I got, point. Yeah, I got tell, strep and, and mono at the same time. And I'd never been to a doctor. I'd never been, but I had this boyfriend at the time who didn't know how I'd grown up. Right. And this so, is when you're at college. Yeah. Right? He yeah. was just watching me get sicker and sicker. And I just refused to go to the doctor and he didn't understand why. And he was getting kind of scared. And finally, I just thought I will go see the evil socialist doctor who will try to kill me. <laughs> rather than confess to my boyfriend (laughs) that I believe that doctors are evil socialists trying to kill me. And so I went and I was given this antibiotic because they tested me and I had strep and mono at the same time. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I just, I took this antibiotic. They gave me penicillin, I think. And I think it was, it was one of the greatest acts of rebellion I think I'd ever done. And I think it was just raw curiosity. My whole life I've been told that if I ever took an antibiotic, something terrible would happen, you know, my eyes would turn green or or my tongue would fall out or I would be infertile for life or just all these things were told to me. And I just wanted to know what will happen if I take this. So I did take it. And then I confessed to my mother that I had taken it over the phone. And um, a day or two later, a package arrived for me, a care package, because I told her I have strep mono and I'm taking this penicillin. And I opened the package and there was clay that I was supposed to use to detox my body. And there were these kind of oils that were meant to purify my bloodstream, all this stuff. And uh, and I realized when I got to the end of the ingredients that she'd sent me, these herbal ingredients, that everything she'd sent me was to treat the penicillin, right. was to purge my body of the penicillin. She hadn't sent me anything for the mono or the strep. <laughs> everything <laughs> right, was to fight right. the penicillin. She was so much more anxious about that than, than about the illnesses. So she was doing that and your father was um, making his living more or less scrapping metal in a junkyard, like basically recycling it. At any rate, he was doing it in a way that was pretty much without regard to any safety measures. So there were a number of injuries. There were a lot of injuries. Not only his own. I mean, his money was where his mouth is in the sense that like when he burned up, he also didn't go to a hospital. But I mean, your brother, Sean, who you were talking about, was horrifically injured twice on the job. There were a lot of injuries. And I think it's hard for people to understand the sincerity of my dad's beliefs. I think it's really easy to take the facts of the stories 
and say and create this caricature of this unloving father who doesn't care about his kids' safety and denies them medical care. And I I think that that is incorrect fundamentally because, um, yes, he did. We did get really hurt because he didn't take adequate safety measures, but he also didn't take adequate safety measures for himself. And we were denied medical care when we were hurt, but he was also denied medical care when he was hurt. So I think the safety measures, it took me a long time to understand that people can hurt other people without meaning to, that people can be broken or dysfunctional in ways that can make them dangerous, even abusive, even if that's not what they intend. My father, I don't know what it was. There was something about the way his mind worked. And as I got older and and learned about psychology, I would speculate that it was bipolar disorder or something like that. But he could not, was not able to evaluate risk. He just didn't understand it. And even after Mm -hmm. someone was hurt, was not able to understand the severity of, of injuries. And so you'd have a situation where he would really believe if we were working in the junkyard, that he could just kind of throw stuff without looking at whether it would hit someone. Yeah, what or, was that like claw thing you guys were using to yeah, chop up he, the metal? It was he, like a, we had to chop up all this angle iron rather than use cutting torches, which is what everyone else wanted to do. He somehow found this like, two-ton pair of scissors that just operated on a wheel. It was basically a beheading machine. <laughs> And you shoved metal into it and it kicked like crazy and you just tried not to be thrown into it. I mean, it was such a terrible idea. But he had this odd belief that um, basically God was working in the scrapyard with us. And so he wouldn't allow anything to happen that was bad. And then if something did happen that was bad, like when he was, when a car exploded and he was burned in ways that he would never recover from. I mean, he would never get the use of his hands back. He doesn't have fingerprints. He looks completely different than he did when I was a kid because of these horrible burns. And yet he's told me that, you know, that was part of God's plan that that happened and because he needed to learn something. But now that he's been through that experience, God wouldn't allow it to happen twice. So he's he's told me that he will go up on the hill and, and light a torch and remove fuel tanks without draining them still. So it's not, so that so it's not so the a, risk. he didn't care about us. And as a kid, I didn't understand that. I did not understand. I would either internalize it as being my own fault because he asked me to do something and I would get badly hurt and I wouldn't understand. Right. I must have done something wrong and I would feel kind of ashamed of myself for not being able to do it. Or I would internalize it as him just not caring about me. And and I think both of those were wrong. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that like, you know, you you mentioned in the beginning that people often don't write these this kind of book until they're much older and until these things have had time to work themselves out but one one of the things that really struck me about about the book is that you're you know having gone through such a radical transformation and set of experiences that you've gone through at least compared to my own experience and that of many of your readers no doubt you're not you're coming at this with a tremendous amount of compassion like throughout the whole thing you're you're it, it's obviously you love your parents obviously you're trying to understand you know even your brother Sean who caused you harm repeatedly like you're you you're not coming at this like these are a bunch of crazy people like that's not what you're trying well, to say there's a couple reasons for that i think one reason is it's not true <clears throat> they aren't just yeah, and, I, and I don't mean to suggest no, they no, are. No, 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 I yeah, didn't yeah, think yeah, that yeah, you yeah, did, yeah, don't yeah. worry. But the one reason is that, that they're not just terrible people, but I think the, the bigger reason that I was keeping in my mind more often is I wanted to write a book that would resonate with people who were in these kind of, and I would even call them toxic relationships. But I think when you say that you're in a toxic relationship with someone, it's really easy to imagine that it's always toxic and that it always feels toxic, and that someone who is abusive to you, that what that means is that they're always abusive to you, and that 90% of your experiences with them are gonna be violent. And I don't think it's like that. I think right. for people in these relationships, 90 to 95% of the time, they're great. They're loving, they're kind. I mean, my brother Sean could be incredibly self-sacrificing. He saved my life, I would say at least twice. <laughs> and right. and one time by putting himself in considerable risk. I was on a horse and the horse was out of control and I'd lost the reins and my foot was caught in the stirrup. And if you know anything about horses, 
if you, if you fall off in that situation, right. you don't fall clean off, you get dragged and your head hits a rock and you're done. And I thought, that's what I thought, I thought I was done because the only person there was my brother, Sean, and he was way behind me on a, on a thoroughbred 1200 pound horse that had never been ridden before. Mm. It was first time with a person on its back. And for him to whip that animal, that 1200 pound muscle, into a frenzy to catch my horse. You know, hysteria in horses is catching, it's contagious. Right. And he took that risk. He for, took it, yeah. he, did, he did exactly that. He whipped it into a complete fit to catch my horse and then was somehow able to calm them down. And again, it's a horse that never had a rider on its back. So he took incredible risk um, and he, he could be that person. And I think for people in those relationships, the temptation is always to use the good things, which really are good, they're not tricks. The love is real, the good attributes are real. Mm. They're not fake to justify the bad things. And I did that for a lot of years. So my brother was really violent. He was really manipulative. Right. He, um, Which maybe, one of his maybe favorite, exacerbated by the injuries. But it might've been exacerbated by caused, the head injuries. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and there were a lot of things about that relationship that were not acceptable. I mean, his favorite nickname for me was whore. Right. Which, you know, I was, this, I was a teenage girl that really entered into my head, into the way that I define myself to the point where one of my journal entries that I wrote when I was 16 about my brother included the sentence, it's strange how you give the people you love so much power over you. Right. And I wrote that sentence, I don't think I had any idea how much power he had over me because he had defined me to myself. And uh, there's not really a greater power than that. But so that, that also, I'm sorry, that also <laughs> wasn't just him too, like that perspective on female sexuality was also within the framework of, of your household, the religious framework that your father was it setting didn't, up. It didn't right? come from nowhere, but I think the way that my brother used it and perpetuated it was so much greater Got it. than any kind of undertones that were existing in the family. There were some undertones of that, but it was, it was nothing like what my brother did okay. with it. Anyway, when I was writing the book, I suppose I felt like in order for this book, for its depiction of what these relationships felt like to be real, for them to feel real to me, mm. I would need the relationships to have the positive aspect because that's how I experienced them. What made it confusing right. when I was trying to come to terms with the decision to let go of some of my family was not the bad stuff. That was very, that, was, that became increasingly easy as I got older and more independent minded to say, this isn't okay. I don't like this. What was hard about letting go of those relationships were the good moments, the moments where he would risk his life to save me or right. the moments where my mother was an incredibly supportive, wonderful force in my life. So, you know, there was a point in my life where my parents were telling people I was possessed because they didn't want to believe me about my brother and they were trying to silence me about what I was saying about him. That was not something that I, I looked at and thought, well, this is very healthy and I, I really want to <laughs> perpetuate this in my life. But there were things I, I did. And yeah. so I felt like when I was writing, if I were to only write about the bad things, it wouldn't, it wouldn't capture what was so hard about walking away. I think for a lot of people who experience or survive and try to like overcome trauma and family and relationship dynamics that are holding them back, they can get very black and white about it as a sort of as a sort of survival mechanism, you know, that basically like if they don't define the situation in very black and white and just say, okay, like these people are toxic, that somehow they're not going to be able to make that. I had that phase. Exit strategy. I yeah. think it's a phase. I, I mean, I, I, have a, I think it, I have a theory about anger. I think anger is, can be entirely appropriate uh -huh. and really healthy. I think anger is a mechanism that your brain uses to get you out of situations that will do you harm. Mm. But I think... It can, the problem with anger is it can be so pervasive and it can, it can just take over everything. I and mean, it can fill you up from your first memory to your last memory so that your whole life becomes rage. And I think that happened to me for a while after I lost my parents. I became someone who had no beautiful memories, mm. who had no childhood memories that I cherished. And that was not a nice way to live. And there's gotta be, a thousand ways to reclaim the past. But for me, story was, story is definitely one of them. And for me, I think it might've been the best one because what it allowed me to do mm. is to write all of the things in a way that both connected them, but kept them completely separate. 
So my brother did save me on that horse, and I get to be someone whose brother loved her enough to save her, even at great risk to himself. But that is also the same brother, and in some ways a different brother, than the one who would attack me when I was 17 in this parking lot and and, and, uh, crack my wrist. So for me, it, it became important at a certain point to kind of get some mental independence and just this ability to live in my own head. And to me, what that means is that nobody can obscure from me the bad and nobody can take from me the good. So now Mm. I feel like someone who had a beautiful childhood. I also feel like someone who had a difficult childhood. And it's important to me that I be able to hold on to both of those things so that when I'm just living my life, I have nice memories I can reflect on because I do have those memories. I do have nice memories. But also that someone can't kind of come in and invade my reality and convince me that things that happened didn't happen or that or normalize them or try to justify them in some way, which I think is what happens in a lot of these families when you have someone who's violent or abusive, it gets rationalized away. Mm. And so for me, the goal is to, to try to hold on to all of it and it, it, as close to the way it is as I can. It takes a lot more conviction to stand by your decision and admit that there were good things. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there was a period where I couldn't admit that there were good things about my family. And I think it, it was because I hadn't come to terms and let myself off the hook or had, I, I was still blaming myself and still berating myself for having made the decision to walk away from my family because there was still a part of me that believed I didn't have the right to do that. Right. And that it was fundamentally not okay. And I had to continually make the case over and over and over that they were so awful that they deserved this thing that I had done. And it, it took me a long time to come to the conclusion that it, it wasn't about what they deserved at all. It wasn't about my dad. I did it for myself and, and how bad he was or how good he was or how bad my brother was or how good my brother was had nothing to do with it because this was about me looking after myself. And then I think after I had that conviction, it suddenly became less threatening to, to admit to myself and to other people that, that in a lot of ways they were good people and I miss them. Like as I was reading, I was thinking that in, in the kind of, for want of a better phrase, like NPR community that might be reading and talking about this book, there might be a tendency to frame this story in a way that that doesn't do those things you're trying to do. And just, you know, because we sitting on the coasts tend to be thinking like, well, there is, you know, enlightenment and post-enlightenment education. And then there is sort of backward, you know, mountain people and see, this is what happens. And she escaped and good for her, right? Yeah, I didn't want to write that book. (laughs) And uh, I'm aware that people will take it that way. And I've heard people take it that way. Um, they're not going to hear me talk about it that way. <laughs> when I talk about education, I don't mean, I don't mean schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I intentionally picked the word educated for the title because I think that is a word that has become so, it's become synonymous with institutionalized. It's become, it's become loaded in right. a way that it almost implies that you've gone to a really select set of universities, that you've come from money, that you've had, it just has so many ties with institution and yeah. power. What does it mean? That's that's where I wanted that's to go. An, what that's is a meaning that we've imposed to, on yeah. it in a way. I mean, what education is, is the individual's pursuit of understanding. That's what education is. School is the institution that you use to get that. And the institution that you use to get an education is gonna have all the flaws and problems that any institution is going to have, any human institution has, is rife with ideology. It's rife with inequality. It's rife with greed. It's rife with bullying. Any human community has these features to it, and especially ideology. So I think, you know, for me, I, I, I titled the story Educated because I wanted to put forward a story about education that was about a person and and change and about Mm. becoming and about changes to the self and changes to the mind. And I, I specifically, you know, in my case, that was represented or, or certainly became visible in, in the strains on my relationship with my family because I was a different person after I became quote-unquote educated and in the broad sense of that word, of reading and traveling and meeting people and, and thinking about 
different things and learning about history that I'd never learned before. Right. And that person was so different. She couldn't, she couldn't, she literally could not keep her family because she'd changed too much. And for me, that attaching the word educated to that journey, as opposed to, well, I went to Harvard or I went to Cambridge. I did technically. Right. But I don't feel like my certificate from Cambridge or my PhD from Cambridge is the greatest symbol of my education. And it's certainly not the most important moment in the book. I, I might have written about my graduation from Cambridge. I honestly can't remember. I feel like the moments of education in the book that are poignant, that make you that I hope make people think about what is an education, all have to do with family and, and, and who is this person and how, how does this person navigate the change that she's gone through. Is it possible for you to, in a broad sense, kind of put your finger on what your education taught you? I mean, what, what you got out of that journey overall? Uh, and as much as I can answer that question, I think the broad answer for me is independence of mind. And we all have a very limited amount of that, no matter how independent <laughs> we think we are. We're never as independent as we think we are. But um, I, as a child, had access to no other perspectives or points of view except my father's. His view of history was my view of history. It was the only one I was exposed to. Right. And um, that changed when I went to college. One of my first lectures, I raised my hand and asked what the Holocaust was. I'd never heard of it. They thought you were being cheeky. And they thought I was not. being anti-Semitic. They thought I was mm -hmm. denying it. And mm -hmm. I was not. I just never heard of it. But, you know, after that, I took an entire course in Jewish history. And then my father visited me my, I think it would have been my senior year of college and began this incredibly anti-Semitic rant about the New World Order. And he said the Jews were trying to start World War III so they could consolidate their power. And I knew the words he was saying. I doubted he'd read the actual text, but I knew he was quoting from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And I knew right. the history of that text. I knew it had been discredited as a forgery. And I knew that that hadn't stopped Hitler from quoting it in Mein Kampf. And I also knew that my father despised Adolf Hitler and would have been horrified to be quoting him. <laughs> and it was the first time in our relationship that I felt like I was the parent and he was the child. It was a reversal of that because he, he was saying something and I understood what he was saying and he didn't. And parents have that with their children all, all the time. A child yeah, says a word yeah, and they yeah. don't know what it means, but you do. But this time he was saying it. And, and it was the first time I'd had enough perspective, enough outside or internal conviction to hear my father lecture in this incredibly prophetic way that he had of talking and to say, I, I don't think that. I think a different thing. And I think that it was that ability to have my own interpretations of the past that would ultimately be the same. Independence of mind is the only term I have for it. But my own convictions of not just of the past, but of, of the present, not what had happened in the past, what was happening in the moment. And of course, in my family, what was happening in the moment was was pretty heavily under dispute because of my brother. And I, I know I have another theory. I think all abuse is fundamentally an assault on the mind, no matter what kind of abuse it is. Mm -hmm. I think it all mm -hmm. always begins and ends with distortions of reality. And you have to invade someone's reality and you have to distort it. You have to convince them that what you're doing isn't that bad. You have to normalize it or you have to convince them they deserve it. All of these distortions have to go into that kind of relationship. And I had always been extremely vulnerable to my brother doing that to me, he, he could convince me three minutes after something really dreadful happened. Uh, you know, I mean, I could still be bandaging my wrist from him twisting it behind my back and, and until it cracked. And he could convince me that it was a game and I'd been having a really wonderful time yeah. and that it had been an accident. And I would take that. That's heartbreaking. You were laughing like I would laugh like in public because I wouldn't when, want, yeah. yeah, it happened in a parking lot and I laughed because people were looking and it was so much more comfortable for me to believe that it was a game. You know, I, I anticipated that he would feed me that narrative later. I started laughing without him even telling me that it had been a game. I, yeah. I started doing it all on my own because it was so much easier for me to believe it was a game than and, to think that I was being attacked. And by it should him. be noted that that kind of mind control is only possible in the context of an existing complex relationship, as you're describing. You know, I mean, there has to be love there as well. Absolutely. For that, there has to, to be a to lot use of trust. It in that way, trust, yeah. And it has to be then abused. And so yeah. I think. I didn't have the ability to hold on to my own ideas even about the present. And weirdly, I think that same skill that let me listen to my father lecture and for the first time in my life think, that's not what I think. I think it would be the same skill that with my brother, 
you know, there were two incidences of violence with my brother that happened really soon after I went to, after I started going to the university. And one of them, he had, he had, in, he had grabbed me by my hair and dragged me down the hall, um, shoved my head in a toilet. And a friend of mine had seen it. And afterwards, when my brother said it was a game and that it had all, I'd been having a good time, I tried to convince my friend of that. And he did, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> he, he knew what he'd seen, but he also could see I was so deeply under my brother's power, there's no point reasoning with me. And I was, I was, I completely took his perspective and made it my perspective. And then it was only a month, maybe a month later, that the incident in the parking lot happened. And that night, I wrote what had happened in my journal. It was the first time I just wrote what had happened. And I wrote that I'd been terrified, and I wrote that I'd been in pain, and I wrote that I begged him to stop. And while I was writing the entry, he knocked on the door and he came in and he said to me what he always said to me, which was, oh, that was just a game and you were having such a good time. And next time we're having fun, if anything is wrong, do make sure you tell me. You just, you really need to speak, speak louder, speak more clearly. And then he left. And I had no idea which version was the right version. Right. Had he experienced it as a game? I didn't know. But I knew that I had not experienced it as a game. I knew that my experience, I had not been having fun. I'd been terrified. And I think it was probably one of the first times that my brother attempted to dominate me in that way. And at the end of the process, there were still two minds present, just two distinct minds, not one mind having gained control over the other. Right. I had not just yielded my own reality to his. And I do think that was something that came from education in this broader sense, which is exposure to ideas and perspectives, a great multitude of them, and then trying as reflectively as you can to sift through them and find out what you think, not what other people think, but what you think based on this myriad of evidence that you have in front of you. And I think it was that same skill that when I said to myself, when I was listening to my dad, he's saying this and I think something else, it was the same kind of feeling when my brother said, this is what happened. And me thinking, I don't, I don't think it is. Mm. I don't think that is what happened. Mm. I understand that you want to say that and then maybe you have your reasons and maybe you really believe it, but I don't, I don't believe it. This is just a sort of a side note, but I was wondering when you were talking about, you know, your father um, coming and sort of preaching from the protocols, um, were you able to, calmly talk back to him? Would he have heard that at all? I'm wondering whether you were ever able, whether there was ever a, a situation as your education unfolded where you felt you were able to communicate back in a way that was understood some of these other perspectives that you were had access to. My dad doesn't always tolerate <laughs> dissent yeah, in the yeah. best way. Um, figured, my experience yeah. is usually, I mean, he won't get angry or anything. He'll just get an extra two hours of lecturing. So really is more a question of, do you want to, What's the you know? point, yeah. Yeah, but I ha I did, there were a number of times. Um, I remember once I was at a restaurant with my father and he, uh, I don't know why all these conversations happen in restaurants. <laughs> um, that he started talking about, and this is just so awful, but he, um, he started talking about how war-torn nations in Africa, that they were being punished for sins they had committed in the previous existence. Nice. And, um, and yeah, I, I kind of I kinda lost it and, uh, and just said, you mean to tell me that like children who are being murdered deserve it? Is this really where you want to go with that? And, and you know, I, he did actually stop and think about it and he never said it again. Huh. And I don't know if he changed his mind or if he just, I, I really, or if or it just if didn't just come up again. I don't know. Bit. I don't think he was ever frightened of me. That would never happen. No. The okay. only other moment it happened, I remember he was talking about like 1787. And if we could just get back to 1787, everything would be so much better. And I did sort of say, oh, you mean when women couldn't own property or vote or you could legally rape someone if they were black? Like, is that the bastion of morality we're reaching for? Right. But generally speaking, speaking up to my father, would you just get another three-hour lecture? And, you know, you just have to wonder if, if, the, if that's, you know, if there's a point to that. Gotcha. Because, pick, pick your battles. Yeah, and I, even, even the moments I'm saying now where he was quiet, I really doubt I changed his mind. I do think I made him think, and my father was one of those people who will, will stop and think 
you know, if, if you get him, if you get him interested in something, he will not just keep talking. You know, he will go away and think about it. Whether that resulted in a change in his worldview, I have some doubt. It know? sounds like his, I mean, his framework and the narrative was so well constructed internally that any new piece of information would probably just be subsumed it, into I it. I think eventually, yeah, he had to work out how to make it fit. <laughs> but he, you know, the way that his mind worked, the ideology behind it and the paranoia behind it was mm. so strong and overwhelming that I find it very unlikely that me coming in would have would have made any difference. So we'll probably return to some of these ideas because it's it's inevitable. But the second half of the show is where we watch short clips, video clips from Big Think's interview archives. The audience will hear these as audio. And they've been chosen for us by the production team. I haven't seen them. You haven't seen them. We'll watch each one and then talk about what we think. Sure. So this is Chris Hadfield. He's a Canadian astronaut. And the video is called Why All Politicians Should Travel to Space and Some Should Come Back. When we're born, we have a very small view of the world, our mother's womb and the delivery room. And as you're raised, your parents are probably trying to control the environment that you're in. And so you end up with a very centralized, tiny little view of the world, naturally. As you get older, as you travel more, as you read more, um, you start to understand a little more of the world around you. And all of those influences affect your choices in life. What are you gonna imagine that you could be? If you've never left Main Street, small town Ohio, then you're probably not gonna visualize yourself doing something that is wildly different than that. You're never going to be uh, the head of a religious sect in, in Pakistan. You know, it's just, it's, it's not inside your worldview. You, you, you can only draw your own aspirations and hopes and decisions based on the things that you even know exist. It's easier now to understand and see the world than ever in history. Our ability to communicate and our ability to travel has greatly improved. But space travel is sort of like the, the wildly exaggerated version of that, where you can go around the whole world in the time it takes to eat supper and see everywhere. See the whole world 16 times a day. That widens and deepens your worldview like nothing we've ever seen before in history. And it's very difficult to maintain um, artificially drawn biases like, like nationalistic borders and you know my little tribe, my little street, my little gang, my little town, my little whatever, when 15 minutes later, you're over at the exact the same looking sort of town, but it's in Africa. And 40 minutes later, at the exact same looking sort of town, and it's in Australia. And then you come up Indonesia and you go, man, it's, it's all the same. They build the towns just like we build our towns. And, and what's, how, how are they they then? It's just sort of all us. We're all doing this thing together. And everyone's got the same sort of hopes and dreams amongst themselves. And that pervasive sense of the shared collective experience of being a human being, um, that seeps into you on board a spaceship. Not the first time around. First time's overwhelming. But somewhere, you know, 100 times around, 500 times around, suddenly uh, the world becomes one place in your mind. It's not very big. And, uh, and that, I think, is a really important worldview to have. So yeah, I've heard I've heard this before uh, from astronauts, and I always find it a little hard to believe. I'm not sure why, but it's obviously true that somehow the visual experience of going around the Earth is a kind of enlightenment experience to them. At some point, it has a transformative effect on their worldview. Um, that's not a question. I'm just starting us off somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was interesting um, that he starts in a delivery room and literally the room that you're in and then then your family. And I think that is just such a universal experience. And you don't have to be raised by extremists in the mountains and kept at home. I think every person, it's a very universal experience. Every person, part of what it means to grow up is learning to define yourself both in connection to and in counterdistinction to your family, to where you come right. from. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, we'll, we'll get obsessed with the book 
with the with the more radical elements of it, with sure. the kind of oh, this extreme parents or or they want to put it into a, a genre of, of people who've come from ext- extreme places and for me that's just the setting it's yeah. kind of if you were situating a novel that's how i think of it this is the setting of a story but the story for me what the story is about is about change and is about how much we allow ourselves to change and do we really believe that the first version that a person takes the first form that they take is that the only true form do we believe that or do we believe people are allowed to change yeah. As you were talking about defining yourself in contradistinction to your family, I was thinking about, I mean, that's right. I mean, for every every single person, your family is like a self-contained universe. Even if you are exposed to all kinds of ideas in books, they are, they're defining your reality. And I was remembering, I don't know, junior, senior year of high school or something, literally getting into a physical confrontation with my mother because of the length of my hair. <laughs> like, right? I mean, just, just the desperate need to grow my hair right. slightly below my collar and her That's... desperate need for that not to be the case, <laughs> resulting in us grappling with each other yeah. physically. Well, it's I, I think change is hard for people. It's hard it's hard to accept in yourself. It's harder to accept in other people. And yeah, I never had I never had a fight like that uh, <laughs> with my mother. But I I do think this whole idea of of change and how much change is, you know, when does it become faking and when does it become sincere and when does it, I think these are questions everybody has to go through unless you're that first identity that you're given in your family is just so perfect for you that you never feel the need to change at all. And I don't, I've never met, I've never met anyone sure. for whom that's true. Um, then some change has to be allowed. And then the question just becomes how much, how much of yourself do you, are you allowed to change? Is there a percentage? Is 51% too much? Mm. Or are you ever able to completely get rid of who you were? And would you want to do that? You know, Joan Didion has that beautiful line where she says that you should always stay on nodding terms with the people that you used to be. Mm. And I love that line. I, I really love it because, you know, one of the things that I find really reassuring because I've changed a lot. I'm not a very similar person to the person that I was even t- even 10 years ago and, and 15 years ago. There are probably almost no similarities that are obvious. But because I, I kept all these journals, I started journaling when I was 10 years old and I wrote nearly every day. And I love that I can read those now and see this continuity of, of a person mm. kind of coming through. And so even though if I, if I pick my 10-year-old journal up, there's not a lot that I feel in common with her specifically. I can trace her, (laughs) you know, I can find her straight through to myself through these writings that I did. And I think everyone has to have a different way maybe of connecting with with who they were. But but that helped, I don't know, I'm really grateful that I have, that I have those because there has been so much change in my life and I wouldn't want to lose her completely. Yeah, writing is really valuable that way. Um, you know, but I was thinking also about what you were saying about authenticity and sort of when is, you know, what kind of change is real. And again, going back to my, my own experience, which is my anchor, I know that I was trying on all kinds of stuff, you know, when I was 16 (laughs) from long hair to let me dress goth and Mm. everything is all black or whatever it might be. And those things are in a way inauthentic, right? I mean, when you're 16, you're trying to be a rock star, or I was anyway, um, trying to be some rock star that I admired. That's not exactly who I was, but there was some aspect of who that was that I wanted the right to be or to try to be. And that inauthenticity is also maybe part of the process of change and growth, you know, like trying on things that may not fit. I think settling and figuring out eventually what things actually feel natural to you or what things you want to feel natural to you because of inadequacies inadequacies that you think you have. So I would say even for myself, I think there was a period where, you know, I mentioned that I think education is different from, it's a different thing than the institutions. We get get education confused with the institution and schools are different than education. And I think there was a period when I was at, at Cambridge that... Probably my identity as a Cambridge student felt really important to me. 
And, you know, in that annoying way where if I had, you know, if I met a stranger, what was the thing I thought they needed to know about me to know me? Right. And I would have said, oh, that I went to Cambridge, that I go to Cambridge is so important. They really need to know that about me. Right. And I just could not imagine feeling more differently now. I feel like the institution where I did my, you know, if I were to say, what do you need to know about me? I think what I studied is way more helpful than that I studied it at Cambridge, which is just the place I studied it, which had a wonderful, was it was a wonderful university, a lot of resources. It was a great place to be. Um, I'm very grateful to have been there. But the fact that right. I love history is such a more integral and in philosophy. If someone wanted to talk to me, just knowing I went to Cambridge would get you almost nowhere, actually. Sure. Like, what are you going to, you know, unless you want to literally talk about <laughs> college culture and, uh, you know, college competitions between the actual institutions itself, which is pretty boring. Although I would say that, like, you know, arriving there at that moment in your life at, at a place with centuries of history as a kind of um, monument to education itself in a way might have been a good thing, you know? I think it was an incredibly fortunate <laughs> yeah. thing that happened mm -hmm. to me that I got to go to a place that had those kind of resources and, and time to dedicate to me. I guess what I mean is I had a crisis of identity going on, a pretty serious one, and was very conscientious about my own ignorance of having never gone to school, sure. was looking for a lot of external... I was looking for an external identity because the old one I had of this Idaho radical who didn't believe in education, didn't believe in, you know, thought the Illuminati was trying to, you know, destroy me. That person didn't work for me so much anymore. I needed a new identity. And there was a period where the draw of the institutional identity was incredibly strong. And gotcha. I am grateful that that didn't last. That in a way, I think this other idea of education and of curiosity and of what it means to be an intellectual, I think, won out. And I'm, I'm very grateful that it did because I think that version of myself that, that would meet someone and say, how quickly can I tell them that I go to Cambridge right, right. was not a version of myself that I'm proud of. It wasn't a version of myself that I think had, had an identity and that was kind of the problem. And yeah, and there are plenty of people who didn't come quite the distance that you that you came, who still go around defining themselves in terms of where they went to school, what car they drive, or such. So I mean, I would say it's an absence <laughs> of self. I, I mean, yeah. I think that I think it comes from not knowing who you are and having to turn to institutions that have very clear identities and have very clear parameters and rules about who they are. And um, I would say it's it's so much more liberating to get past that so much more pleasant i can't remember the last time i told someone i went to cambridge <laughs> i just can't remember you have to keep hearing it on this book i do <laughs> i do get told a lot i went to cambridge but like last time that i actually met someone and just felt like that needed to come in i just can't think of when that has happened and it's a much nicer way to live <laughs> i want to talk about history and one thing i found particularly interesting in the book was the way that you used your historical studies to look at Mormonism as an idea and a worldview in the context of like American self-definition. And in fact, I'm going to start I'm going to start with m you know my own prejudice that like the idea of digging up metal tablets from the ground <coughs> and you know the angel Moroni and whatever just seems almost as sci-fi to me as L Ron Hubbard's backstory for Dianetics, you know? It's a funny thing. You know, that story, the story of Moroni was introduced to Moroni, me, was introduced to me in the way that gravity was introduced to me in the way that any other just really obvious physical law. I was probably 21 years old before I met someone who didn't just take it for granted mm -hmm. that that story was true. So my father, I should say, is not particularly Mormon, I don't think. He's not representative of Mormonism because right, right. most Mormons believe in public education and schools and all the rest of it. So I would say Mormonism is not what made my family live the way that we sure. did. But um, when I s decided to stop believing in Mormonism, I think it had a lot more to do with the fact that there is a specific way that you have to live your life to be Mormon. And, you know, gender identity is so strong in Mormonism and not just for women, it is very strong for women, but it's very strong for men. And 
I just wasn't sure that I really thought getting married at the age that I was told to get married and having kids at the age that I was told and kind of being a stay-at-home mom, I wasn't sure that it was the right life for me. And I yeah. wasn't sure that the when they described woman as this abstract concept in Mormonism, I didn't feel like that. That's not what I felt like um, as, you know, like a nurturer and a carer. I felt like sometimes I was like that, but I also felt like a lot of the times I wasn't. And so when I read John Stuart Mill when I was at Cambridge, and he has that amazing line where he says, he basically says, you know, women have been pushed and cajoled and forced into so many different odd contortions over the centuries. Right. It's now quite impossible to have any idea what they what they are capable of. And so then what he says is this amazing <laughs> line, which is of the nature of women, nothing final can be known. And I just, when I read that, I think it was the first time that I found such just amazing comfort in this black absence of knowledge that, that he was just saying, we have no idea. <laughs> so whatever you are, you're probably woman. Like we don't, we don't know what it is. So whatever you are, it must be part of this. Right. And I had never felt that way. I had always felt like there was something kind of wrong with me because there was a, a strong idea of what I was supposed to be like. And it wasn't like that. And there was a strong idea of what I was supposed to want, and I didn't want it. And there was a strong idea of how I was supposed to feel and, and all these things. That I And sometimes I did, and a lot of times I didn't. So for me, the the theology, I, I, had, a, I had an issue with the life I was being asked to live. And right. I didn't feel like I could be, I didn't feel like I could live a life that was in any way genuine to myself and continue to believe in in this religion. And so that did make me turn to the history, I, I suppose. But for me, that was a validation of a decision I'd already made. I wasn't Mormon anymore. I, see. I, had, I had abandoned the beliefs before I made any serious study of the history. Mm -hmm. As a historian, as a student of history, what fascinates you most? Is it about understanding the struggle of various worldviews throughout time? I became very interested in historians. <laughs> I became really interested in how historians dealt with their own biases when they were writing history. And I became obsessed with the idea that even the most respected accounts from Harvard, whatever, <laughs> are written by people. And these people have bias. And I think that I found that very comforting because I, you know, I, I was raised in this household where I was given access to one version of history. And then I went to a university and had to ask what the Holocaust was. I'd never heard of it. And it was very embarrassing. And I think, and I'd obviously received this very biased version of history. And it was comforting to me to think that everyone was biased and that ideology is an inescapable force. You can't get away from it, but you can get access to more than one. That's what you can do. I right. can't make my dad not be ideological any more than I can make any of the great historians not be ideological, but I can read a number of them and try to use that body of opinion that is wildly divergent to try to work out what I actually think. And that's, I found in a way, right. it was comforting not to turn from one form of absolutism, the absolutism of my father, to another form of absolutism in the form of, 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 of any book that is put out by a reputable press. It was, Got it. for me, Got it. really liberating to say, we're all historians and we're all writing stories all the time, and we're all biased. And I wrote a chapter on Mormonism that I would in no way claim as a definitive history of, of Mormonism, but it, you know, that question, who writes history? Well, I write history, and I know I'm biased. I know everyone's biased. Mm -hmm. And it's it's just one, one voice. It's one account. It's one way to think about this community and this moment of history. And it's not absolute, and that sure. is comforting to me. I, I find that comforting, too. And at the same time, you know, feel compelled to say that it seems to me that the the fact that everyone is biased does not mean that all truths are relative does not mean that there isn't such a thing as being more wrong or more right everyone is colored by their framework but you know i don't think it's an opinion for example that the earth goes around the sun i mean i've never gotten to an argument about that and if I did, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would press the point because I'm not sure it matters what, whether I think that or whether someone else thinks that. But I do think there are things, and the more we learn about psychology, the more we learn almost everything that we think is an unexamined opinion. Almost everything. And then there's a slight sliver of our mind that we ha that we are able to use to rationally evaluate our opinions and right. our ideas and right. try to figure out where they come from. And 
I'm less interested in establishing who's more right and who <laughs> is more wrong mm -hmm. than I am in pursuing that process of examining the things that we know psychologically from the research that's been done, so much of what we think mm -hmm. is all in intuitive and we have no rational intervention in it whatsoever. And we just believe it for no reason, actually. I don't think that you can have an opinion unless you have been challenged on it. I think that that process of having heard the opposing view right. and taken it seriously, even just for a short period of time, right. And really engage with it, not just as an inoculation against it, so that if you never encounter it, you can dismiss it with, you know. But really thinking about what are the virtues mm. of this, I, uh, I, I hold that process. It to me seems incredibly important. Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who come up a lot, thinking fast and slow. Yeah, they they come up a lot. They won the Nobel Prize for their cognitive psych stuff on human biases, uh, but Kahneman was. I don't know if he started this, but he engages in a process basically where he'll sit down with a hard science colleague who utterly disagrees with him. And they together will create a research framework to try to study a problem right. from their two totally opposite perspectives and try to, yeah. uh, if not come to, to an agreement, at least discuss it. Well, in politics, I think together. this belief that we have the absolute answer you know, this kind of weird belief in positivism that has taken place that for one thing that there is an absolute answer and that we have access to it because we are educated and because our community is educated and the other community is ignorant. The people on this side of the aisle are very well informed and the people on the other side of the aisle are not well informed. And I think if there's anything that you can learn from Kahneman, it's that none of us are particularly well informed. And if there's something that we've <laughs> lost, you know, that whole platonic scene that is described about about Socrates where the Oracle of Delphi says he's the wisest man. Mm. And Socrates goes around asking people who have a reputation for wisdom questions to try to figure out why he's wiser than they are. And of course his conclusion is that he is wiser, he says, than this man because I know that I don't know things. Neither of us knows anything very useful. But where when I don't know something, I, I know that I don't know. And I feel like this is a real skill that we've lost. We all have this conviction that quote unquote science has vindicated whatever random view we have, whatever random view. Mm. And I think, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, the actual looking into these claims or these ideas that I do before I make a claim like science says right, right. is none, actually. Right, right, it's right. none. I don't do anything. Right. We do it on the basis so, of yeah, belief. Yeah, I have opinion. a vague right. conviction right. that there is an absolute positivistic scientific answer and that my people know it because we're the quote unquote educated people, even though everything I know about institutions is that they are ideological and that they produce ideology uh, and, and adhere to ideology almost above everything else. And that if individuals who go through these institutions want to challenge that ideology, it is, it is by reintroducing that individual inquiry element and not the institutional element, which is important. Institutions are wonderful. Right. No, you know, a lot of the advances that we make, no single person could make them. You need the institutions in place, but you also need the individual element of an education in place. You know, even going back to John Dewey, he said there's the social and there's the what society brings to an education and what the individual brings to an education, and you have to have both. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think for me, I just, I constantly need to remind myself there is a culture developing, I think, I think especially among among educated people that our community is is right in an absolute almost religious sense yeah. that requires or certainly doesn't seem to have any tradition of reading, examining, thinking. It's just a, it's just a belief authority. that we yeah. mm -hmm. it's just a belief that we have. Yeah, yeah. And it it's a belief like any other absolute belief that I ever encountered when I was growing up in a in a super right-wing ideological family. It's it feels very similar to me. And I, I dislike that. I dislike it in myself above all. Um, I think that's a powerful note on which to leave this. Um, Tara Westover, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for being on Think Again today. No, my pleasure.
And that's this week's episode of Think Again. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm getting educated every time I have one of these conversations, and I'm very, very grateful for it. You can come find us and join the conversation at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast on Facebook. Feel free to write to me, letting me know what you think of the show or anything at all, really, at jason at bigthink.com. And if anyone out there is in or near Green Bay, Wisconsin, please do write to me because we have a live show coming up and I'd love to talk to you about it. We'll be back next week with something completely different. See you then.